Uh, Lord, I'm excited about it, and I pray that you'd help us and you'd meet with us. Lord, just help me to just step out of the way, and you know what needs to be said. You know what people in the church need to hear, and I pray that you just meet with us tonight and help us to be to, to walk out of here just knowing that we've heard from you, Father. In your precious name I pray, amen. Okay, well we find ourselves, like I said, in, in the book of Acts, chapter number one, very first uh, sermon in the book of Acts, and uh, just by way of introduction, look at verse number one, and I kind of want to introduce the book of Acts to you a little bit, Acts chapter number one and verse one, the Bible says, the former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. Now, the first thing I want you to see, and like I said, it's just by way of introduction, the book of Acts was written to a man named Theophilus. Now, uh, it is commonly believed, and I believe, uh, I, I, I believe it's pretty uh, obvious that the book of Acts was written by uh, Luke, uh, the doctor Luke, uh, and I believe that he, he wrote the book of Acts, and uh, one of the reasons for that is because as he's going through the book of Acts and he's uh, telling the stories and writing, um, at a certain point, uh, he begins to refer to the group there that is with Paul and the, the events that happened, um, and he says, you know, that the, he, he begins to speak to them in regards of happening to himself. He says, we, you know, went through this, and this happened to us, you know, and we know that Luke was traveling with Paul, and it, and it doesn't happen throughout the entire book of Acts, it happens kind of towards, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the later half of the book of Acts, when Luke joined up with Paul, because at the beginning he's just telling about what, what happened from the time that Jesus resurrected up until, you know, where he joined up with Paul, he's just kind of telling the story, and then he begins to talk about himself, uh, you know, and, and, and the book of Acts takes that tone there, and we'll see that when we get to it, but one of the re- biggest reasons is if you see there in verse 1, it said, the former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, the book of Acts the, was written to a man named Theophilus, if you go with me to the book of Luke, chapter number uh, 1, and you look at verse 3, you'll see that the book of Luke, Luke was also written to this man Theophilus. So, really, Luke is writing kind of a, a, a two-volume treatise. And, and the first volume was the book of Luke itself. And it was the story of Jesus Christ. Look at Luke chapter number 1 and look at verse 3. Luke chapter number 1 and verse 3. The Bible says, It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus. So you see there that the book of Luke was written to this most excellent Theophilus, and then later, and that was written obviously by Luke, and then later Acts, verse 1, he says, the former treaties, referring to the book of Luke, have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, and then Acts is really the second part, or the rest of the story. Because Luke tells, it takes you from literally the birth of Jesus Christ up until His resurrection, and then in Acts chapter number 1, we kind of recap the end of Luke for the first five uh, uh, verses there and then we move into the rest of the story after Jesus ascended up to heaven and what became of that uh, church there in Jerusalem and the rest of the believers in Jesus Christ. So I want you to see that that it was written by Luke and it's really counterpart to the book of uh, uh, Luke there Uh, Luke was the first part and then Acts is the second part written to this man Theophilus. Now you may ask who was this man Theophilus? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us much about him. In fact, he's only mentioned in those two introductions, in the book of Luke and in the book of Acts. But, you know, if I had to take 
uh, I guess I would say that he is some sort of a, uh, a leader or some sort of a Roman leader. If you look there at Luke chapter 1, one and verse 3, uh, Luke refers to him as the most excellent Theophilus. You know, that's a title. And he gives him a title. And it's almost the title of a, of, of a Roman leader. And I'll show you that in the Bible. Go with me to Acts chapter 24. And this is just by way of introduction. But I want you to see, you know, what's going on. If you look at Acts 24 and verse 1... Uh, we read an account there, and it says, And after five days, Ananias, the high priest, descended with the elders, and with a certain orator named uh, Tertullius, who informed the governor against Paul. And when he was called forth, uh, Tertullius began to accuse him, saying, Seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness, and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence, we accept it always, and in all places, most noble Felix... Uh, with all thankfulness. So you see there, when they were speaking to Felix, who was some sort of a leader there, they referred to him as the most noble Felix. Uh, go with me to Acts chapter number 26. Look at verse number uh, 24. In Acts 26 and verse 24, the Bible says, And as he thus spake for himself, this is a reference to Paul speaking, Festus uh, said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself, much learning doth make thee mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. So we see there in the book of Acts that when they were referring to these leaders, they referred to them as most noble Felix, most noble uh, Festus. And it's similar to what Luke was referring to uh, Theophilus when he said most excellent Theophilus. So if I had to guess, I would say that he's some sort of a, he, that's a title there, and he's some sort of a leader. Uh, we know that Luke, uh, you know, was a doctor, and he wasn't, you know, probably on the lower end of society. And anyway, Luke is writing uh, the book of Acts to this man, Theophilus. We understand that through the inspiration of the Holy Ghost is being written to every believer uh, in Jesus Christ, and, and we can take all of the teachings there and apply them to ourselves. But, you know, just by introduction, I want you to understand that. That Luke is the writer, and he's writing it to Theophilus. Look at verse 2. It says, Until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive. Now remember, Acts chapter number 1, verses 1 and 5, he's kind of just recapping or reviewing what happened in the end of, of Luke, or really in the end of any of the Gospels. And it says, to, all, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion. By many, I want you to take note of this word. It says, infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. The Bible says that Jesus Christ showed himself alive. After his uh, resurrection, he showed himself alive, uh, the Bible says, by many infallible proofs. Now, I'd like to just show you something, and I like to do this every once in a while, but, you know, at our church, we believe that the King James Bible is the infallible Word of God without error. And but, you know, sometimes people might get confused and they might think, oh, well, there's other versions of the Bible out there. And there's other Bibles that we can read and they're, maybe they're, you know, they'll fall into the trap of thinking, oh, well, they're easier to understand. Um, you know, but I, I, I want to show you something. I have here in my hand one of the most popular versions of the Bible, probably the most popular version of the Bible in America right now, uh, as far as its use, which is the NIV, the New International Version. You walk into uh, the average church in America, and they're going to be using this Bible, you know, just the average 
charismatic, you know, non-denominational church. They're going to be using uh, the NIV Bible. And I want to just read for you out of Acts chapter number 1 and verse number 3. And I want you to read out of the King James Bible that you have in your hand. And in Acts 1-3, I'll, I'll read it again for you. It says, To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now let me read for you out of Acts chapter number 1, and verse 3, out of the NIV. It says, After his suffering, he showed himself to these men, and gave many convincing proofs. Now, did you notice how it said convincing proofs in the NIV? In the King James Bible, it says infallible proofs. Now let me ask you a question. Are the words, is the word infallible and the word convincing the same word? No, it is not. Let me explain to you. The word infallible means not fallible. It means exempt from error. You know, infallible means not fallible. You say, what does fallible mean? Fallible means uh, liable to error. Especially in being deceived or mistaken. Liable to be erroneous or false. Not accurate. The word fallible, or like you heard the word fallacy, or it comes from the same root word as the word false. The word false and fallible and fallacy, they all mean something that's not true, or something that's not accurate. And the word infallible means it's not fallible. It means it's exempt from error. It means there's no mistake. And the Bible says in Acts chapter number 1 and verse 3, that Jesus showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. That means that they were proofs that were not false. They could not be proven as wrong. They, they, there was, it was completely true. He showed infallible proofs. But according to the NIV, He only showed convincing proofs. You know, the NIV, it's like, Jesus is some sort of, you know, used car salesman. He, he was real convincing in the fact that, you know, He rose from the grave. But you see how the NIV just waters it down? The, the NIV says, well, it was, it was pretty convincing, you know, that He rose from the grave. But the King James Bible says, no, no, no. It wasn't just convincing, it was infallible. It could not be proved. It was without a doubt. When it's saying it was a sh- without a shadow of doubt, Jesus Christ rose from the grave and showed Himself alive. And we know that He showed Himself once up to, you know, uh, up to, in 1 Corinthians 15, it tells us uh, oh, 500 brethren saw Him at once. You know, the Bible tells us that there was 14 recorded accounts in the Scriptures that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. Uh, you know, after He rose from the grave, 14 different times it's recorded that He, uh, you know, appeared to somebody or showed Himself to somebody. There might have been more than that, but we have 14 of those times recorded in the Scriptures. You know, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is, it happened. It's without fallacy. It is infallible, and it shows us infallible root. But, you see, the NIV changes it to convincing. And what you got to understand is, changing one word will change an entire doctrine. You know, and, and these Bibles today that are trying to make it easier to understand, you know, really they're just trying to make a dollar. And the, the truth of the matter is, they can't put out the King James Version of the Bible, because then they can't copyright it. It's got a copyright law demands that this Bible be different from this Bible. They must change words from this Bible and this Bible, you know, to make it different from the King James. They must remove verses like they do in Acts chapter number 8, and, and um, all through the Bible. They, they must, you know, change wording and change things. But the, here's the problem. Things that are different are not the same. When you have one verse that says infallible, and you have one the same verse, supposedly, that says convincing, those two things are not the same. There's, so Jesus, God only wrote it one way. God either said infallible, or He said convincing. Which one do you think it was? You think God said that Jesus showed Himself in a convincing way? 
I'm pretty, I would go with the one that's been around for over, you know, uh, this year is the 400th anniversary of the King James Bible. And, and uh, that's what I would go with. And you can't find an error in the King James Bible. And, uh, you know, just something interesting for you to see there. You know, don't fall into this trap of, uh, well, the NIV is easier to read. Or the New King James is easier to read. And I can understand it better. Because they, they, they say that, but the truth of the matter is when they change words, they mess with doctrine. And Jesus is not some sort of a used car salesman that's trying to convince you, you know, that he rose from the grave. It was infallible proofs, is what the Bible says. And, uh, you know, we've got to fight that fight. And uh, we're trying to fight that fight here at Verity Baptist Church and stand for the King James Bible. But look at verse number 4. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Now let me just say this. We're not going to deal with the subject of the Holy Ghost tonight. Uh, we dealt with it back in John chapter number 20, when we were in John 20, uh, just a couple weeks ago, I believe it was John 20. Yeah, John 20, when he said, receive you the Holy Ghost. And in Acts chapter number 2, we have the day of Pentecost, and we've got the speaking in tongues, and we're going to be preaching on that subject, and we'll be dealing with the Holy Ghost there. So I'm not going to uh, go through it uh, this week, but if that's something you're interested in, you want to know what it is, you know, what the Bible teaches about the Holy Ghost, you want to know if it's biblical to be speaking in tongues, like they did in Acts chapter number 2 in the day of Pentecost, come back next week on Wednesday night, we're going to be dealing with that subject, and uh, I promise you, if you have an open mind and you open up your King James Bible and read it. It'll make sense to you and you'll know exactly what God teaches about that subject. Uh, so come back next, next week. So we're going to kind of skip those verses and we'll get back to them next week. Look at verse 6. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him saying, Lord, will thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Now they were, the, you got to understand, the disciples were kind of mixed up. Jesus had resurrected from the grave and they literally thought that Jesus was going to restore the kingdom of Israel on earth at that moment. And, and that's what they're asking. They're saying, are you going to restore again the kingdom of Israel? Now I just want to show you something about this. If you go with me to Matthew chapter number 8, look at verse number 11. I, I preached uh, a few sermons on this. So, I, so this is another subject I don't want to uh, delve into too long because we actually just preached an entire sermon on this subject a couple weeks ago on Sunday morning um, about the Jews and as far you know as far as them being God's chosen people and stuff like that. So, but but I want to show you something about this kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, in Matthew chapter number eight. Look at verse number eleven in Matthew chapter number eight. And I just thought of a different verse in Revelation. Let me see if I can find it real quick. I'm sure I can. Uh, are you there in Matthew chapter number 8? Look at verse number 11. Jesus said, And I say unto you, that many shall come from the east and the west. That's a reference to coming from all over the world. And he says, And shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is saying, Look, People are going to come from the east and the west. All these Gentiles from all over the world, they're going to come and they're going to sit with Abraham. They're going to sit with Isaac. They're going to sit with Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom, referring to the children of the earthly kingdom, the physical Jews, shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see there that Jesus Christ taught and he was telling the Pharisees, he was saying, look, you guys, you, you guys think because you're physical Jews that you just have an automatic, you know, pass in. And then I'm just going to restore the kingdom and you're just, it doesn't matter if you believe in me or not. It doesn't matter, you know, how you, 
you know, what you do, and if you get saved, if you reject Jesus Christ, if you crucify Jesus Christ, you just got an automatic pass into heaven, and I'm just going to have a kingdom on earth, and I'm going to reign with you, you know, and, and because you're Jew. But the truth of the matter is that the Bible says that they're going to be rejected, the physical Jews, and we've talked about this in Galatians chapter number 4, so I don't want to go there, but the son of the bondwoman, the physical Jew, is going to be cast out into outer darkness, is what the Bible says, what Jesus says, and the spiritual Jew, the spirit, the son of promise, Isaac, that's going to come from the east and the west, they're going to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and, and, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Go with me to Revelation chapter number 2. Let me see if I can find this real quick. Uh, Revelation chapter number 2. Revelation is the last chapter, or last book in, in the Bible. And uh, let's see here. Look at verse number 8. Revelation chapter number 2 and verse 8. The Bible says, I know thy work. Oh, let's start at verse uh, 7. In Revelation chapter number 2 and verse 7, Jesus Christ is speaking to the church in Philadelphia. And he says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan. Look what it says. Which say they are Jews, and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. So, Jesus is speaking to the church in Philadelphia, and he says, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan. Does that sound like a positive religion? You know, what religion in the world is the religion that identifies itself, itself with a synagogue? The Jews. And he says, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan. Does it sound like Jesus Christ is claiming that as a religion? He's saying the synagogue of Satan. And then he makes this very, uh, you know, statement that could be uh, confusing if you don't understand the Bible. He says, which say they are Jews and are not. You say, well, why is he saying that? That someone could say they're a Jew and not be a Jew. And here's why. Because all these physical descendants of Abraham are running around saying, I'm a Jew. I'm God's chosen people. I'm going to be in the kingdom. But Jesus Christ says, yeah, they say they are Jews, but they're not. Because he's saying the, tr the, the true people that are going to reign with Jesus Christ and, and receive the promise and the blessing are not those physical Jews, but the spiritual Jews that became, you know, part of, they got engrafted into the, the, in, into, into the tree there uh, by believing on Jesus Christ, the Son of the Promise. And we preached on that before, uh, who Isaac represents. So, that, those are the Jews. The spiritual seed. And that is going to reign with Christ for a thousand years. But anyway, the disciples are asking about that. And they're saying, you know, are you, wilt thou at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Look at verse 7. Now, I always like to, when I study the Bible, when Jesus is asked a specific question, I like to see how He responds. You know, sometimes I think we read the Bible and we just don't really, we're just reading the verses. And we don't really understand that you know, they're having a conversation. And they asked him, Wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? Verse 11. I'm sorry, verse 7. And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons, which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power. After that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. 
And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. So they ask him about the kingdom. And they ask him about the millennial reign. They're asking him about, you know, after the rapture, when Jesus comes back and establishes a physical earthly kingdom on earth, and he's reigning on earth physically for a thousand years. And Jesus says, don't worry about that. And he says, here's what I want you to worry about. And really what he's saying is this, if you want to worry about the kingdom, instead of worrying when I'm going to set it up, why don't you just try to get people in the kingdom? Why don't you just try to get people saved so that they can make it to the kingdom? Why don't you just work on, you know, getting people saved and working so that maybe you can get a reward in the kingdom? And he says, but ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Because if you remember, he promised them that the power of the Holy Ghost, not the indwelling, we saw that in John chapter number 20, he breathed on them, he said, receive you the Holy Ghost. That's when they received the Holy Ghost. If Jesus Christ says, receive the Holy Ghost, let me tell you something, they received the Holy Ghost. But then He promises them the power of the Holy Ghost, which comes down in the day of Pentecost. And He says, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Notice He says, the the Holy Ghost came upon them. Not inside of them, He came upon them. Just like the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson. Just like the Spirit of the Lord came upon Saul. Just like the Spirit of the Lord came upon David. Just like the Spirit of the Lord came upon many people in the Old Testament. uh, the, the, The power of the Holy Ghost coming upon someone has happened all throughout the Bible, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit was something new that Jesus Christ said would happen after He was glorified. Anyway, now I'm preaching next week's sermon. So, but, but He said, but ye shall receive power. After that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and He says, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, and look what He says, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. This is what's known as the Great Commission. And we find the Great Commission in five different places in the Bible. And the last one is found here in Acts chapter number 1 and verse 8. Literally, seconds before Jesus Christ ascends up into heaven, if you look at verse 9, He says, And when He had spoken these things, while they beheld, He was taken up, and a cloud received Him out of their sight. So the last things that Jesus Christ says to the disciples before He literally ascends up into heaven, never to be seen again, you know, until He comes back. He says, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. The Great Commission, you say, what's the Great Commission? If you notice, the word commission has this word in it, mission. The Great Commission is the mission that Jesus Christ gave to every believer, and to the group, the gathering of believers, the church, to go out and witness and get people saved. And notice he said he wants you to start in Jerusalem. And then he wants you to, you know, that's the city they were in. And then he wants you to go in all Judea. You know, in our, in our geography, you know, mindset, that would be like uh, their state that they were in. That was the tribe that Jerusalem was in. And in Samaria, that was a region near them. And then he says, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. You, you say, you know, Pastor Jimenez, why is it at Verity Baptist Church? Every time I come here, you give these announcements, and you announce, you know, that you, we're having a soul winning time on Saturday morning at 10 a.m., and, and late soul winning at 1 p.m., and then afternoon soul winning at 3 p.m., and then Sunday afternoon soul winning at, at 3 p.m., and then why do you, you know, go soul winning all throughout the week, and, and why do you, you know, why do you knock on doors and invite people to church and ask people, you know, uh, if, if they know that they uh, go to heaven when they die, or if they're not sure, or, or you know, ask them about their salvation. Why 
here that you're just constantly highlighting every time. You know, you go someone and you finish the street and you and you mark that street, you know, and you say, well, it doesn't look like much has got done. Well, you got to understand, every, every line, you know, in that map that gets highlighted represents hours upon hours of work, you know. I mean, that's the whole city of Sacramento. And, our, you know, our, our, our church our size has been around for seven months. That's actually a lot of work that's been accomplished. You say, well, why are you doing that? Why do you have a goal of knocking on every door in uh, the, the city of Sacramento? Why do you have a goal of maybe one day as the church grows, maybe taking some young men and training them for the ministry and sending them out to start churches, you know, all over California and all over America and all over the world if, if God would allow us to take men and, and young boys and train them for the ministry of Jesus Christ. Why is it, you know, that your church seems to be so focused on getting people saved and giving people the gospel and inviting people to church and getting people baptized and, and, and trying to get people out so many and trying to get, get people to live Why is that? And if you, if you have that question, the answer is found in Acts 1.8 because Jesus said, you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea. And in Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. That's why we're trying to reach Natoma. And that's why we're trying to reach Sacramento. And that's why we're trying to reach uh, Citrus Heights, and Orangevale, and Elk Grove, and Carmichael, and North Highlands, and Rancho Cordova. And that's why we're trying to reach, you know, anywhere that we will ever be able to reach. That's why one day we'd love to send out mi uh, missionaries out all over the world. And, and we want to do that. Why? Because that's the job that Jesus Christ has given us to do. The Great Commission. He's commissioned us and He's given us a mission to go reach the world. But you know what's the sad thing? And when I really, when I sit down to think about this, I go through a few emotions. The first emotion I go through is just, it's just funny. I just laugh about it. But then when I really start thinking about it, it just kind of makes me upset. But you've got to understand, Jesus Christ gave the Great Commission five different times. You'll find it in every Gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John... And then you'll find it also in the book of Acts. In, in different ways. It's not, you know, repeating it. He gave the Great Commission five different times. At different times, you know, in different words. And each one of those, if you study them out, they all emphasize a different part of, uh, of the commission there. And one of these days we'll preach a sermon on that and we'll, we'll show that to you. But, uh, you know, he, he gave this commission. And literally, the day he resurrected from the grave, he gave the Great Commission twice. Halfway from the 40 days, you know, or sometime in the 40 days that he was appearing, he gave the Great Commission once. And then the day that he ascended up to heaven, he gave the Great Commission twice. And Acts 1.8, he literally gave the Great Commission and then literally went. I mean, it was the last things he said. It was the most important thing he wanted his disciples. He said, I don't want you to worry about the kingdom. I don't want you to worry about, you know, what's going to happen. I just want you to worry about one thing. Go get Jerusalem saved. Go get Samaria saved. Go unto the uttermost parts of the earth. But here's the most amazing part to me. The one task that Jesus Christ gave us to do, 99% of Christians do not do. Isn't that amazing to you? I mean, open up a phone book in Sacramento and just go open up the churches. And just go down the line and call churches all across. It's just Sacramento. I mean, in Sacramento, there's probably, I mean, I don't know, but there's got to be like 30 to 100 churches in all Sacramento. And I promise you... If you call every single church and ask them, do you have a soul-winning ministry where you go out on the doors, and out in the neighborhoods, knock on people's doors with the intent of preaching the gospel and getting them saved, and you might find three or four churches in this entire city of over three million people that are out doing the one thing that Jesus Christ commanded us to do. 
and let's feed these homeless people. And, let's all, and look, I'm all for that. But Jesus did not commission us to do that five different times after his resurrection. He commissioned us to preach the gospel. And that's the one thing that we do not do. The Great Commission has turned into the Great Omission. You say, what, what does that mean? It, it means, you know, the, the word omission means to like omit something. It means to like just not do it. I mean, and it's amazing to me because He gives us one task and we do everything else but the one thing He told us to do. We build buildings, you know, you say, oh, you're building, you know, I'm talking about, you know, Christians in general. We build buildings, we build colleges, we build organizations, we build, you know, all sorts of things and all, you know, all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. But the one thing He wants us to do is the one thing that almost nobody does. I mean, the average Christian has never left someone else in the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The average Christian has never, in their entire life, had the opportunity to lead a sinner in prayer as they receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. And that's the one thing God wanted us to do. And we just seem to have forgotten about that. And by the way, let me say this. You say, well, you know... Since we started this, just, just this year, you know, we're in May, May 4th. In this year, we've had 60, uh, what did I say, 66, 67 people accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior at Verity Baptist Church. We've had six people baptized. That's 10% of the, you know, 10% of people we've, uh, we've uh, given the gospel to and they got saved, 10% of them got baptized. Now you say, you know, is that something uh, good? I think it's good. You know, based on churches I've been to, I mean, it's very rare. I mean, I know some churches that are doing it, but it's very, I've been to churches that they don't, you know, they baptize once every six months. And, and they're like, they're not twice as big as us or three times as big. They're like a hundred times bigger than us, you know. Um, you know, but it just seems like the one task God gave us to do, we just forgot about it. But look at the disciples, and look what they're doing. Jesus Christ ascends up, you know, or He gives them the Great Commission. Look at verse 9. He says, and when He had spoken these things, while they beheld. So they're just watching Him. And I'd be watching too if someone just started floating up into heaven. And it says, while they beheld, He was taken up. And a cloud received them out of their sight. So he like goes into a cloud and they can't even see him anymore. But they're just still looking up. Just, you know, just amazed at this. Look at verse 10. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. So they're just looking up at Jesus just trying to see if they can see him. I'm sure they're wondering, is he going to come back? And they don't even notice that these two men walk up. It says two men stood by them in white apparel. Which also said, ye men of Galilee. And notice what he asked them. Why stand ye gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. And then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And now look, I'm not, I'm not faulting the disciples. You know, I'd be doing the exact same thing if Jesus just ascended up to heaven. I'd be looking up and seeing, wow, that's amazing. But you know, it's funny to me, because He gives them the Great Commission. He says, go into the uttermost parts of the earth. And they're just watching Him. And the angel has to come down and say, look. And really, this is what the angel is saying. He's saying, you know, why are you just watching heaven? He said, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? And he says, he's pretty much saying, get to work. Because he's saying, you know, he says to them, the same Jesus which is taken from you into heaven, 
shall so come in like manner. And he's pretty much reminding them, like, look, Jesus just left, but the problem is that he's coming back. And you might want to just get to work. And the Bible says, you know, they return, you know, they're fasting and praying and they're waiting for the Holy Ghost. And, and in just a few short days, over 3,000 people are going to get saved. I would say that they got to work. But here's the illustration I want to give you. That's what the average Christian is doing in their life, in their entire Christian life. It's just gazing up to heaven. You say, what do you mean? I'm, I'm talking about spiritual. I'm not talking about physical. I'm saying spiritually, the average Christian, here's what happens. They get saved and then they just wait. Till they die or Jesus Christ comes back. And they're just spiritually gazing up to heaven, just waiting. Is Jesus going to come back? And the funny thing is, you know, because the thing is, if somebody gets saved, of course they want to go to heaven. And you know, they believe in Jesus Christ. They believe in heaven. They believe in hell. They believe all the things that they're supposed to believe. They believe in the Bible. But they never go out, and this is what I'm talking about, they never go out and knock on the doors. They never go out and try to preach the gospel. They never go out and try to get somebody saved. And most Christians are just literally sitting around, waiting for Jesus to come back, when they should just remember, hey, He is going to come back. We need to go out and get somebody saved. We need to go out and reach the world. We need to go out and knock on every door in Sacramento. We need to go out and give the gospel to somebody, because Jesus is coming back. You don't have to turn there, but Revelation chapter number 22 and verse 12, Jesus said, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according to his works, uh, according as his works shall be. Jesus says that he's coming quickly, and his reward is with him. He says, I come quickly, and my reward is with me. I don't even understand why the average Christian wants Jesus Christ to come back, because they never got anything to try to, you know, get someone saved. And then, you know, Jesus says, I'm coming with my rewards. I wish you'd do something. I'm coming to reward you for the work that you've done. I wish you would get to work. But look at, look at verse 1 in Acts chapter number 1. Here's the problem with the average Christian. Acts chapter number 1 and verse 1. We're almost done. Acts chapter number 1 and verse 1. The Bible says, The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus. And look what he says. Of all that Jesus began both, look what it says, to do and teach. Notice that Jesus Christ not only taught, but He did. The Bible says, of both to do and teach. See, Jesus Christ, did not, did, He didn't just preach, go reach the world, He actually went. He didn't just preach, you know, the Bible, He actually did it. He took action to it. But you know where we find our mistake? Is we all teach it, we all believe it, we believe there's a heaven, we believe there's a hell, we believe there's a devil, we believe there's an enemy, we believe there's a God, we believe in salvation, and we teach it, we believe it, and somebody asks you, you say yes, but you never take foot, you never do anything with it. And that, you didn't learn that from Jesus. Because the Bible says, all that Jesus began both to do and teach. I, I want to say like uh, Paul said in Ephesians, he said, but ye have not so learned Christ. Because I'm telling you something, Christ was not a lazy, spiritual Christian that came to church and sat around and did nothing. He taught and then he did it. And that's what he expects us to do. He's commissioned us. 